You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, most of America tuned into the Super Bowl yesterday, but before the teams took the field, many Americans watched the Puppy Bowl first. So what is the Puppy Bowl, and why do so many advertisers want in? Betty Crocker, the little guy from Lucky Charms. You know, most food characters aren't real. Just something fun to help make a connection to the brand. But then there's Chef Boyardee. 87 years ago, a celebrity pilot named Amelia Earhart mysteriously vanished during a flight. Have researchers finally solved the mystery? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, yesterday was the Super Bowl. And before the Super Bowl airs, there is a program called the Puppy Bowl, which airs on Animal Planet and Discovery+. Plus. Have you ever watched the Puppy Bowl or had any interest in watching it? Yeah, somehow, I never planned to, but somehow it's like it's always on in my house. And it's one of those things, too, that like you'll, you laugh and you're like, ah, I'm not watching that. And then if it's on, you find yourself like kind of, oh. Well, that's well, oh, like two hours have gone by and you bad. don't know where they went. Not too bad. What I love about <laughs> the puppy bowl, though, and just like dog competitions in general, is the person, like the trainer that goes around with the dog. And I mean, if you've made it to that level, like you've sunk a ridiculous amount of time of your life into doing it. So, you know, these people like it is their job, like it's what they do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and also at that level, the dog and the person start to look the same. You know what I mean? Like you, you look, they look like they're related. If, like if it's a little white dog, it'd be like a little white person with white hair. They just kind of look the same. Well, Dave, the Puppy Bowl is an annual event that takes place in the afternoon before the Super Bowl, airing on Animal Planet and Discovery Plus. Puppies compete in games with live announcers in a miniature football stadium. The event was originally created to raise awareness for animal adoption, and unlike the Super Bowl itself, every participant is a winner. The event boasts a 100% adoption rate of all the puppies who participate. But the idea, Dave, like many great ideas, initially was suggested as a joke by Animal Planet executives. As Rolling Stone recounted in 2014, quote, During a meeting, a suggestion was made that the best defense against the programming juggernaut would be to point a camera at puppies on a football field in a sort of dog version of the televised burning Yule log that airs every holiday season. Margot Kent, the executive producer for the Puppy Bowl, remembers that it was always a joke. How do you counter the Super Bowl? Let's just put a box of puppies up there and call it a day. It's not worth trying to go against the Super Bowl. Charles Taylor, a marketing professor at Villanova University, calls the Puppy Bowl an ingenious idea as counter-programming to the Super Bowl. Millions tune in for this canine spectacle that first launched in 2005. In 2021, the event drew 2.1 million viewers, making that a pretty impressive feat, especially considering it goes head-to-head with the Super Bowl. Viewership, while it has traditionally hovered around 2 million live viewers, it's the impressions that the event generates on social media, particularly on TikTok and Instagram, that get it into the multiple millions of eventual views. 
Then the event is re-aired on Animal Planet and Discovery in the days following the Super Bowl, which rakes in millions of more viewers. Now, according to Vox, the Puppy Bowl is actually not filmed live. As longtime Puppy Bowl referee Dan Schnocker explained in a 2015 Reddit Ask Me Anything session, the Puppy Bowl was shot about three months in advance, he says. A lot of people don't know this. The reason why it takes so much time is the Puppy Bowl broadcast is a two-hour event, but it is not a two-hour event to film. It takes two full days to film. Reason being, we are trying to showcase as many different puppies as possible, and we want to rotate them in and out and give them as many chances to have action on the field as possible. He says, additionally, there are 17 cameras shooting the action on the field at the same time. You can imagine two days of shooting, 17 cameras. That is hundreds, if not thousands of hours of footage that needs to be watched, logged, and edited. Now, Dave, companies are taking notice and striking sponsorship deals with Animal Planet. From Pedigree to Wisdom Panel to Wayfair and Subaru, brands are eager to be associated with this event. So then why the Puppy Bowl? Why not use your marketing budget for the Super Bowl instead, which is annually the most viewed program in America? T. Benita Cornwell, a marketing professor at the University of Oregon, explains it this way, saying, The Puppy Bowl appeals to families with children, and families are frequently buying furniture and home decor. So Dave, even though a company like Wayfair, for example, may not be pet-based, they see advertising with the Puppy Bowl as a way to specifically target their core demographic, families. Cornwell says research shows that positive emotions, such as the ones that puppies evoke, transfer to the brands associated with the event. The Puppy Bowl strikes a perfect balance between competent and meaningful. Advertising during the Puppy Bowl isn't just heartwarming, it's cost-effective. While a 30-second spot in the Super Bowl can cost up to $7 million this year, Puppy Bowl ads come in at significantly lower price, making it a more targeted and budget-friendly option for companies. Brian Cavalucci, Associate Director of Advertising for Subaru of America, says, The cost to run our commercials in the Puppy Bowl are significantly less, and for our buyers, much more targeted than the ads that run in the Super Bowl. So the Puppy Bowl, now in its 20th year, has introduced more sponsors over time, sparking some criticism, strangely enough, for the perceived commercialism of the event. However, the more money that comes in, the more dogs get rescued, and the more impressions generated, especially over social media, can lead to local shelters and dogs getting featured, and then more ultimately adopted. So from humble roots to ratings juggernaut, the Puppy Bowl continues to grow alongside the Super Bowl, and as far as intentions go, Dave, I think it's best to stay positive. <laughs> Hilarious. Am I wrong you like that, that it's a- it's a scandal. <laughs> it's a bit of a scandal that it doesn't happen live. It seems like a bait and switch on the surface, but at the same time, I get it because you are trying to just film chaos. I mean, there's just dogs running around. They don't know what to do. And I guess, like, like you said, and I looked up some different stats about it. I mean, certain seasons of the Puppy Bowl have like 90 hours of video, 90 hours that they have to sort through to build this program. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that reminds me of talking to a friend of mine who used to work at the Discovery Channel. He told me that he had been working on Shark Week. And, I mean, that just sounds like the coolest thing ever. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, you, you make Shark Week? And he was like, yeah, it's horrible because it's thousands of hours of footage that I just have to sort through. It's just it's just ocean shark is swimming over here swimming over, and i have to put it i have to sort it all so that you get to see this 40 minute awesome thing knowing that i've spent weeks collecting clips it's just mind numbing work yeah but those are the real heroes
you have a favorite fictional food-related character as a kid? Like, you've got a lot of options. It could be the ship captain from Captain Crunch. Maybe it was the rabbit from Tricks. You remember? Silly rabbit. Tricks are for kids. Could even have been the little Keebler elf cookie guy. Cute little guy, even though it was kind of sick when you think about it. Because you actually had to eat them to devour the cookie. The cookie looked like the elf, so you were eating the elf to eat the cookie. (laughs) Did you think about this as a kid? Uh, all the time. And then I'd be like, huh, I'll just eat his head. And you just bite his head off. It's te- it's doing something to you, I'm telling you, psychologically. I'm not <laughs> I mean, saying it's our, like serial killer development, but it's it's something. I mean, our uh, serial cabinet growing up was pretty boring in terms of characters. There were not a lot of character life in there. You know, we had Life Cereal, which does not have a character. We had Frosted oh, yeah. Mini oh, Wheats, which do not have a character. Oh, even more boring. And uh, that was pretty much it. I mean, sometimes... Some Raisin Bran. You probably had some Raisin Bran Some Cheerios kind of would sneak yeah. in. I mean, they have the bee, but like past that, it was not a very cheerful place in there. Not a lot of color. Oh, you reach in there and just... <laughs> You reach in there and you grab a, a big bowl of despair. That's what <laughs> well, uh, while not my favorite, Jay, from a uh, food standpoint, I mean, what kid wants to eat vegetables? I have a special connection to the Jolly Green Giant. So like 10 years ago for Halloween, as we've talked about before, my friend John, who's like six foot five, so he's kind of a giant himself, he dressed up as a perfect version of the Jolly Green Giant for Halloween. And he and I made the perfect Halloween pair because, as you'll recall, that's the year I dressed up as the human carrot. How could I forget? It's a, a scarring image that's just burned right under my brain. I can never erase. Special times. <laughs> but, Jay, unlike the Jolly Green Giant or other fictional food favorites like Betty Crocker or Uncle Ben, Chef Boyardee, the name and face on the little Italian pasta ravioli you undoubtedly ate as a child, and perhaps you still do now, no judgment, was real. Hector Boyardee, the jovial, mustached Italian chef from the Cannes, founded an actual Italian food company in 1928 after his family immigrated to America from Italy. In her cookbook, Delicious Memories, Boyardee's niece, Anna, remembers the man that she referred to as Uncle Hector as being one of the most important people in bringing Italian food to America. Italian food at the turn of the century wasn't what it is today. Boyardee told NPR, all of the finer restaurants were French restaurants. The Boyardee family chose Cleveland, Ohio as a spot where Italian food may be embraced. And they were right. The restaurant was a success. So much so, Jay, that customers were interested in finding out how they could make similar dishes at home. This started the process of Chef Boyardee as a brand becoming what we know it as today in our grocery stores. What if we started jarring our sauce and selling it? Would it sell, Boyardee said? What was this uh, little germ of an idea that I had? It came from that. That eventually turned into Chef Boyardee. The new company was truly revolutionary, not only in playing such an important role in bringing Italian food to America, but it changed the way our grocery store shelves looked and what cans could be found where. In fact, in the 1930s, Chef Boyardee was the largest importer of Parmesan cheese to America. From there, the family built a facility in Milton, Pennsylvania that could produce a quarter million cans of Chef Boyardee per day. And interestingly, you'll like this, during World War II, the U.S. military actually commissioned the Boyardee Company to produce food for army rations so soldiers could enjoy just a little Italian treat. 
Today, foods loaded with preservatives like cans of Chef Boyardee have fallen out of favor for fresh, often organic ingredients. But Anna Boyardee told NPR she's perfectly fine with her family's name being thrown into a microwave. There's room for all different kinds of food, she says. There are people that are working and their kids have to come home and make something for themselves. It just works. I don't know about you, Jay, but actually I, as a kid, hated <laughs> Chef Boyardee, so we uh, we never got it. I always thought I'd like it. I'd always ask my mom if we could get it, and I'd just like, oh, this, I'm going to like it now. And we'd get home and, ah, and I'd throw it away. Sounds to me like Chef Boyardee is probably rolling around in his grave right now, just thinking about his name being attached as a true Italian chef, his name being attached to a canned pasta that gets microwaved just seems wrong it seems wrong until you look at your bank account (laughs) i guess but at what cost you sold your soul well the cost is billions of dollars that's (laughs) what the cost is you're telling me if you if you had made something like called sisson sauce and you found out later you returned back as a ghost after you died and sisson sauce was like just readily available like it was like ketchup you could just go to a restaurant and get it for free you wouldn't but I'm find saying that this incredible. is like this, though if your family this, was living in a mansion. This is this man's life's work. Like he's known as a chef, and then it's just he gets he gets relegated to a can forever. I like how you just passed by me saying that you did returned as a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> it's too big of a discussion to have here. <laughs> Dave, to close us out, today we're discussing the disappearance of aviation pioneer Amelia Earhart. It's been 87 years and countless theories have circulated on where she went from that she was captured by the Japanese to that she was eaten by giant crabs. Now the team at Deep Sea Vision may have cracked the case. Eaten by giant crabs. I paused because I thought you'd have a question about that. (laughs) Well, I just, I was trying to process what you had said because... I thought, so we're, I mean, we have like smart people, I'm sure, on this. Like there's some of probably our nation's top scientists who are trying to figure out, you know, what happened. I'm sure that they, every waking moment, they're trying to figure out what happened to Amelia Earhart. And that's one of the conclusions they came to. So let me. All the things that they could have said. You know what, boys? I I think giant crabs (laughs) ate her. Me too. I just didn't want to say it. So before I tell you about this, let me introduce you to the coconut crab which is a very large and scary-looking beast that lives on islands I'm, I'm lo- off the I'll coast of Japan. The coconut and so crab. the theory goes that she may have crashed, gotten onto one of these islands, died. Oh! And then... it's as, <laughs> Hold on. It's as big as a trash oh, can. Huge. This picture yeah. of this, it's a, it's, a, it's a crab on a trash... He's as big as the trash can. The theory goes that she died on like an island somewhere, and then coconut crabs are notorious for eating everything of their of like what they're eating so like if they're eating a carcass of something they eat everything and they pick and eat all the bones so the theory goes that we've never found anything because they just ate everything that existed of her Shoot, thankfully i just found an article it's a bigger deal than it sounds coconut crabs are vanishing thank goodness (laughs) get rid of them do your thing nature do your thing get rid of them well dave amelia Earhart, a trailblazer of her time like we said she vanished without a trace 87 years ago during a flight over the central pacific ocean theories of what happened to her have abounded ever since uh, clearly but none have provided conclusive answers recently deep sea vision an ocean exploration company made waves with a potential discovery Yellow sonar photographs reveal a plane-shaped object resting at a depth of 16,400 feet on the Pacific Ocean floor. 
Tony Romeo, the pilot funding the search, expressed his excitement, telling the Wall Street Journal that it was the most exciting thing he had ever done in his life. But before we dive into the discovery, Dave, let's backtrack and take a moment to remember who Amelia Earhart was. A true pioneer, she achieved the remarkable feat of being the first woman to fly solo across the continental U.S. and the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to the U.S. mainland over the Pacific. When she disappeared, it felt like a contemporary icon vanishing into thin air. Tony Romeo offered a modern comparison, saying, imagine Taylor Swift just disappearing today. It was that level of confusion. Now, previous attempts to find Earhart failed, even with seasoned searchers like Tom Detweiler, who helped locate the Titanic. What set Deep Sea Vision apart was the flying experience of the Romeo brothers. They believed pilots, not mariners, held the key to solving this mystery. So in September of 2023, the Romeo brothers and a 16-person crew embarked on an $11 million expedition, selling all their commercial property to fund it. Utilizing historical records and radio messages, they meticulously calculated Earhart's flight pattern, pinpointing a strategic search area. Their underwater HUGIN drone operating for 36-hour shifts scanned an extensive 5,200 square miles near Tarawa, Kiribati. After 30 days of intense searching, the drone captured fuzzy sonar images of a plane-shaped object. Now, experts remain cautious, requesting clearer images or the plane's serial number for verification, and obviously skepticism exists. Richard Gillespie from the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery points out discrepancies in the wing's shape, casting doubt on the discovery's authenticity. Gillespie says specifically the image shows an airplane with swept back wings, and due to the aircraft's structure, it was physically impossible for the wings to fold back like that, even in a crash. The airplane and the image, if it's an airplane, look very much like a 1950s-era aircraft carrier based jet fighter, many of which were lost in accidents. So Dave, while Deep Sea Vision's discovery brings hope, the puzzle remains unsolved. Time and further research will unveil whether this particular plane-shaped object truly marks the end of one of history's greatest mysteries. I just can't believe... you. Know, we, it's sometimes you, you forget that we live in a... a like, the Earth is big. You know, because you just know what you know. Like you, you, you believe in what you see. So you, you think like, oh, I just look out the window and I see these little birds and like I, I there's like little bugs out in my yard. There's these huge crabs <laughs> that are as big as a human, and they're on the same earth. I'm sorry that telling you about the coconut crabs sparked some sort of existential crisis in you. Is what it seems like has happened. It's like we we don't really need to explore anymore in the ocean. Like, I know there's, like, miles and miles and miles of, of deep, deep ocean we've never seen. We don't need to see it. <laughs> How scary would that be? How scary would it be to be, like, in a submarine, and you're down underwater, and it's super dark, and all you have is, like, a little light? I mean, it would be the most terrifying thing in the world. I can't imagine being in a submarine. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> like, the thought of it right now, I'm getting, getting kind of claustrophobic. Imagine having to be in a submarine for, like, a month. No way. <laughs> Sharing a space with like three people that you hate to like three co-workers. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Crop. We'll see you next week. Speaking of Parmesan cheese, you know, he was the largest importer of Parmesan cheese. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know if I ever told you this. This is so nasty. When I was a kid, I uh, loved Parmesan cheese, like unhealthy obsession with Parmesan cheese. And we'd go to Pizza Hut all the time, like on Friday nights. And I would, I would just get a little plate, like a little side plate, and just, just fill it up with Parmesan cheese. And I'd just eat that. Your body's just crying out in pain. So I, please stop I, the I torture. To. <laughs> <laughs> See, these are the things I need to remember when my own son does things like tonight. He was, he was putting cheese, he was stuffing cheese into raspberries and going, cheeseberries, and then eating them, which is so nasty. <laughs> But I should just let him, you know, because it's, uh, hey, it's all going that's, down. That's, that's better way. than what I was doing. <laughs>